Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Didn't know we were allowed to do this, to have a positive, good vibes holiday Monday morning show. Toronto Blue Jays sweep the Boston Red Sox. They do it in a fun fashion. They do it in a Saturday, at least, pretty dramatic fashion. They do it with a huge, huge boost from the greatest three-game debut in Toronto Blue Jays history, from David Schneider. It's been a minute since we did a, a show that felt pretty positive. Last week was not a great run of shows from that perspective because we were all pretty underwhelmed by the Jays' activity or lack thereof at the trade deadline. Jays obviously lost three or four to the Baltimore Orioles in a series that Chris Bassett would tell Hazel May yesterday was embarrassing. And uh, in his words, everyone took that personally. They went full Michael Jordan in the last dance looking at the iPad. Now, the Orioles swept the Mets on the weekend, so you don't feel any better about the division race here. After that, uh, the Jays still sitting seven and a half back here despite being 63 and 50. But it was a lot of good work done. They beat... The Boston Red Sox 7-3 on Friday. It's the Davis Schneider debut. It's Whit Merrifield leading off the series with a first pitch home run. Vlad homering in that first inning as well. Davis Schneider homering eventually. You get a pretty good Alec Manoa start. Yeah, there was some iffiness with hitting five solo home runs and not executing with when the guys were actually on base still. All those rally killing home runs. But it was a pretty good win. All things told. Saturday was among the most infuriating wins you could possibly have. They win that one five to four. They leave a bunch of opportunities to do more damage out there. Um, uh, a hook of Jose Brios that worked out fine, but at in the moment was, uh, you know, maybe a little bit questionable. Two men on, but, but a pitch efficiency. And Jose Brios had kind of been not jobbed because... The hits are the hits, but what he'd given up came on really well-executed pitches. Uh, what are you going to do when Raphael Devers reaches down and pulls a good slurve out of the dirt for a three-run home run? What are you going to do? Uh, anyway, that was one part of it. The leaving guys on base in bigger opportunities is part of it. Jays had 14 hits in all three of these games. Only scored five runs on Saturday. But the big one was bases loaded late in the game, uh, sack fly to right field. Alejandro Kirk on third base and he doesn't go. He doesn't get sent. Santiago Espinal gets caught hung up between second and third base an inexcusable base running error. I tweeted at the time. That's going to be a top five worst situation to get thrown out in bases loaded, a slow runner in front of you, not picking up the signal or what that guy is doing. Big spot late in the game, last out, all those things. And if anyone was wondering, ha, huh, that's only top five. What is the worst situation you could get thrown out in? Well, Reese McGuire, folks, uh, that game ends on him getting doubled off at second base, a fly ball that looks like it's going to hit the monster initially. But here, look, I'll, I'll give this away to other players in baseball, base runners. If Kevin Kiermeyer is tracking a ball and he's got his arm out to feel for the wall and he's slowing down in a way that it looks like he thinks he's going to catch his ball, maybe trust the greatest center fielder of this generation that he has a better read on that ball than you do. Uh, Reese McGuire is around third base when Kevin Kiermeyer catches that ball, easily doubled off at second to end a very silly game. 5-4 win 
for the Blue Jays. Sunday rolls around, never in doubt. 13 to 1 victory against the Red Sox. It very much had the vibes of last year's, like I, I forget what the final score was, 27 to nothing or whatever game at Fenway. Um, David Schneider pours in four hits. So if you were counting for the weekend, those nine hits over his first three games, this is a stat from our pal Sarah Langs at MLB. He is the first player to have nine hits over his first three career games since 1938. Coker Triplet. Sure, a real name that they were given to people in the 1930s. Coker Triplet did not have two home runs uh, in his nine hits over his first three games. This is also, as you may guess, the most total bases any Toronto Blue Jays put up in their first three games. Uh, this His 15 total bases in three games eclipses Rowdy Tellez, who had 12, uh, J.P. and CBN Lloyd Mosby, who had 11 in their first three games. Uh, a couple of other things. David Schneider was also, for four consecutive days now, if you look this morning, the most searched player on fan graphs. That's where we're at. This is a national phenomenon now, the David Schneider of it all. It was a really fun weekend. He was obviously a huge part of that. Uh, our guy, Ali Khan, over at the Blue Jays social media team, doing a terrific job capturing all of the weekend for David Schneider with photos, with um, little videos and things like that. Hazel May also has a, a great story up on her Twitter that I'm sure we'll hear more about on the broadcast tonight about the glove David Schneider uses and where that came from and the connection he has to John Schneider through that. Uh, a lot of fun stuff around this weekend. Most importantly, they win three. They improved the 63 and 50. No, they don't catch up ground on the Baltimore Orioles in the division. Uh, a lot of the teams around them, a lot of the teams they're chasing had really strong weekends. This is that time of year. Uh, you're going to have to play really, really good baseball to catch up those seven and a half games. But it was a big weekend for putting the teams that are chasing them in the wild card further behind them. The Boston Red Sox playoff odds entering the series were 23.2%. They're down to 10.7%. Uh, Yankees also floundering there. The Mariners are now the closest team to you because they swept the Angels over four. Angels, buy seven. If you think the seven and a half to catch up in the division is too much, the Angels are seven back of a wild card with multiple teams to jump on the way there. Uh, interesting weekend all around for the American League and those standings. Uh, if you're watching Sunday Night Baseball, Luke's got to be tired here. We're operating the board. He was doing Sunday night baseball last night. Um, yeah, Dodgers uh, prevented the Padres from continuing their their hot run and getting back to 500. Anyway, very fun weekend of baseball altogether. Let's see how Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic felt about it. Caitlin, good morning. Thank you for coming on on a holiday Monday. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am excellent. It's Caitlin, I can't tell you how nice it is to have uh, a positive energy show on a Monday after a, a couple weeks of not the best uh, vibes around this team. Um, how are you feeling coming out of the sweep? I know, I know you weren't in Boston, but I mean, everything, all that energy, all that positivity, it bleeds through in the TV broadcast. It bleeds through in the quotes from players. Um, this team has to be in a better position today than they, they were Friday morning. Yeah, for sure. And like uh, you kind of alluded to this, but um, the weekend in Boston really felt reminiscent of how the Blue Jays played Boston last year. I mean, I remember that series. It was right out of the all-star break where Blue Jays absolutely just dominated Boston at home, swept them um, over three games. It, it included that like 
I think it was 28 to five game. Um, and it was like crazy. There was another big scoring game and it was like the Jays scored like 40 runs, more than 40 runs or something like that in that series. And like this one, they outscored the Red Sox something like 28 to five or something like that. Um, so uh, 20, uh, whatever it was, they outscored them significantly. Um, and so that was kind of what I was thinking about, you know, the, the record between those teams had been so lopsided the other way to this point. And it almost didn't make a ton of sense because I thought the Blue Jays kind of matched up really well against the Red Sox. Um, they're kind of somewhat similar teams. And, you know, the Red Sox, their pitching isn't great. So it sort of didn't really make sense how the Blue Jays weren't beating them or the, that record wasn't more even. Um, and so it was good to see the Blue Jays actually kind of um, rebound after a bad series against the Baltimore Orioles and not sort of continue to let the whole dig even deeper. Um, yeah, I saw an interesting quote from Chris Bassett, who's usually pretty honest, um, and just said, like, the result against Baltimore was kind of embarrassing for the Blue Jays, especially at home. Um, you know, they had a chance to really kind of close the division lead, um, playing four games against um, Baltimore, and they, they didn't do that. Um, the, you know, it's, you said it's seven and a half, and that's going to be really hard to make up. I think they still have three more games against Baltimore, but um, you're going to need a lot of help. Um, you didn't really help yourself there. So it's good to see them then have an opportunity in the next series to sure not like make up ground in the standings um, and teams ahead of you, but put some distance um, in the teams behind you. Yeah, and the distance for the teams behind you is, you know, the, probably the most important thing if all you're looking at is playoff odds. Um, you know, if, if your primary focus is getting in, which it should be, uh, that's uh, that's the thing you want to be doing, putting the Boston Red Sox away. And that was honestly one of the one of the gripes about struggling to beat them earlier in the season is you let them hang around uh, a little too long. Now, a big part of this weekend, Caitlin, obviously everything you said is important and that's what we're going to be focusing on moving forward, you know, especially that Orioles series that's coming up right before the schedule turns a little softer. Uh, the big part of this weekend, the most celebrated part of this weekend was the arrival of Davis Schneider and the boost that that provided. Now we're not going to pencil him in for three win or three hits per game. He's on pace for something like 32 wins above replacement. If he played a full season, I don't think he's going to like triple the record for wins above replacement. However, in your experience, Caitlin, even a short term boost from a call up like this, an unexpected hot streak from a, a guy you weren't planning to have in the mix. How much can this kind of give a team a shot in the arm and help them find their momentum at a time when, you know, the other parts of the lineup weren't really going. Yeah, I mean, I think it's huge. I think that you saw the team um, kind of having fun with him. You know, I know Brandon Bout had that great interview with Hazel um, after the game and, you know, called him Babe Schneider. And um, I think there's, like, uh, you know, good, youthful energy. Not that the Blue Jays are an old team by any means. Um, they have a lot of young players. But um, their young players are like vets in the league, practically. I mean, they all got called up so young. Um, you know, Vladdy's in his, like, fifth year, but he's only 22, 23. Um, and so I think that um, it's always nice when a kind of a rookie comes up and just has immediate success and can um, – give the the lineup kind of a shot and you know the Blue Jays offense has been so interesting like it's not 
like it's been bad by any means. It's actually been good, but they seem to have just been missing that piece where, um, you know, hits for power in the right moment or keeps the line moving at the right moment. And David Schneider, this, um, you know, this weekend seemed like he was able to do that. Um, he injected power right away, obviously hitting a home run in his first at bat. He added another home run um, on Sunday and then obviously uh, racked up nine hits overall, um, which really helps, you know, <laughs> helps the offense. It, there was a number of times where he kept the line moving um, and, you know, where they were able to score after him. And so that's really important, especially with Bo Bichette out. Like, you know, um, when Bo Bichette comes back, I think that um, – manager John Schneider is going to have some, you know, decisions on his hand because uh, the way that Davis Schneider is playing, it's like, you know, I don't know that he's going to continue. Like you said, it's pretty um, incredible clip that he's on. Um, But, you know, if, if he continues at least being productive, then yeah, there's going to be some tough decisions, but the lineup looks a lot better, um, you know, with him in it, especially if he's hitting and then you get Bo Bichette back, it's like, you're moving him down. Like it all of a sudden looks really good. And I think one of the things like um, that I was overshadowed a little bit, but also understandably so was I thought Springer looked a lot better. Mm-hmm. Like we, we kind of made, uh, I mean, it was kind of funny when he broke his um, 0 for 35 skid uh, against Baltimore, but that was a bloop single. And, you know, you'll take it, especially when you're going the way that George was going. And we saw how sort of excited he was when he got that hit, but I thought in Boston, like there was a few hits that were hit, hit much harder, like a lot more convincing. Um, I think he had um, something like seven hits over um, the three game. I think one day he went four for four or something. So he was really productive as well. So it kind of looks like, like as much as Davis Schneider is the story and you're loving what you're seeing from him, almost seeing George Springer coming back, is probably a little bit more important um, just because like you really essentially need his bat going wherever he's hitting in the lineup. So I think overall it was a great series for the offense. And it's weird because you saw them kind of coming alive in that, in that series uh, against the Dodgers. And then they came home and it just like, didn't really carry over um, that much. They were, you know, okay. Again, the angels and then the Baltimore, they couldn't get hits and it was just weird, but now it's coming alive again. So you just hope that you can sustain that as you go into Cleveland. You, you hope that, and you hope that it can, you know, the guys who are getting going here a little bit that can trickle over, you know, I thought, I know he hit a home run and had a double on Friday, but I thought Saturday was one of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s worst games we've ever seen from him at the plate. And he obviously gets the off day Sunday, so he's not a part of that, you know, big 13-run barrage. But maybe, you know, Springer hitting a little bit and a couple extra guys going can can let him exhale and get going a little bit. Um, Caitlin, you mentioned the Babe Schneider joke from Brandon Belt. Just want to mention that our friends over at the Gate 14 podcast have quickly turned that into a shirt. It's maybe the quickest I've ever seen a quote turned into a shirt shirt but there you are um so caitlin you you said you know when bobachek comes back there'll be some tough decisions for john schneider um look a week or two weeks from now whatever it is for bobachet it's entirely possible david schneider is cooled off someone else is heated up whatever these things change but at this moment when you look at things is it reasonable to think that at least as long as schneider is reasonably solid that the corresponding shuffle would be that Paul DeYoung is pretty much into a bench role. Is that the way you think that would shake it? Cause it looks like, you know, Bichette's 
at-bats would be, you know, hey, there's some DeYoung there, there's some Schneider there, there's some Whit Merrifield and Dalton Varsho there because DeYoung would enter the second base mix. How would you expect that to shake out if things felt when Bo returns how they feel right now? Yeah, I think that that could work um, if you have DeYoung at second base sometimes. And he said he can play it. He hasn't played it often, but he can do it. And I think he's more comfortable. Not that you're going to remove Matt Chapman anyway, but he's more comfortable like just being up the middle. That's like sort of the angles that he sees best from. So it wouldn't really work to move him to a corner. I think he's more unfamiliar with that. But second base should be somewhat of a fairly... Um, uh, easy adjustment for him um, or easier, I guess, than another. And then I guess you can still play wit in left field um, against certain matchups. And, and you know, Varsho for his, uh, for his part looked a little better in Boston. I know he didn't play in every game, um, but he looked like he was hitting the ball a little better. So hopefully he's kind of coming out of his prolonged slump at the plate and, um, you know, looking a little better offensively. But, yeah, I think DeYoung probably moves into a bench role. That was probably, like, always going to be the case um, when Bo came back. It really feels like that move at the deadline was kind of almost solely to cover off for Bo Bichette's injury, which you needed to. Like, you, you needed a shortstop. You, um, you know, other than um, Espinal, there's really no one um, that can play it on the team. And the way that Espinal is swinging the bat, you probably don't want him to be an everyday player. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that makes the most, most sense. Um, and, you know, the, the, the more options manager John Schneider has, you know, the better for him. And, um, you know, it will be probably a tough decision to get sent down um, in terms of when Bo comes back. But that's probably a decision that is going to be made when it needs to be made. I would imagine that Santiago Espinal um, is watching closely how that how that plays out with the uh, once again a, a bit of a miscue on the weekend. He had that in the Dodgers series as well, uh, and we know what this team thinks uh, of Kevin Biggio. Okay, Caitlin. So there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of positive from that weekend. The Davis Schneider of it all, the offense getting going, the distance you put between yourself and some wild card teams. Um, Maybe I, I don't know that this has like been under the radar because it's cool day to day, and we have talked a lot about how good this bullpen is. Um, the Blue Jays have the best ERA in baseball over the last month of action or so. Um, they have only twice in the last eleven games allowed more than four runs. One of those was the seven six win, and there was that thirteen to three loss to Baltimore, where they kind of waved the white flag uh, a little bit at one point. If you go back and look at the starting outings they've gotten, you have to go back to July eighteenth, Manoa against the Padres. For the last time, there was what I'd call a bad starting pitching outing. I, I know Gosman had a shorter one and Ryu wasn't amazing, but that's the last time you really had uh, a bad one. Are you feeling that day to day? Like we're, especially because we're in the six man rotation period here with the shorter bullpen. Um, I, I don't think I really appreciated it until I looked at just how good the numbers have been the last little while. Do you feel similarly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like the pitching has just been so quietly consistent. And I think because the offense has been so frustrating um, a lot of the time that that has dominated the conversation and people aren't really talking about the flip side of it and being like, well, like the only reason you're sometimes able to win these like three, one games or two, one games or whatever, three, two is um, because the pitching has been so good. And so, um, you know, I don't want to characterize, you know, how fans feel about their team or, it, or whatever, but I do think that generally when I'm viewing sort of the discourse on the Blue Jays, it just does seem like um, a lot of it is about sort of the 
what the offense has not been able to do or like has not delivered as opposed to like maybe the pitching um, exceeding our expectations or being so good, or at least like um, responding to the fact that the offense hasn't been as strong and just, you know, the pitching being a strength that we didn't know it would be. Um, And, you know, it's been so quiet, like even the bullpen, I'm sure if you go back, like uh, they've been in the top 10 or sorry, top five in the American league, probably going back to like June. Like I remember like looking at numbers early on and being like, Oh, actually like the bullpen's really good. And like, it's just been so quiet. And it's like, you have all these guys having amazing seasons, whether it's like Mesa having a great season as ERA is under two, um, you know, Eric Swanson, for the most part, it's been really good. Um, maybe gets, like, unnerved about the ninth inning a few times. But, um, you know, Jordan Romano, again, having a great season, should be back soon. You have Trevor Richards having a great bounce-back year as well. Um, and so you have all these guys, um, you know, performing really, really well. And then, obviously, that adds up to, like, a really strong bullpen. And you had some surprise guys like Jay Jackson um, having a great season, too. And so, um, and then, yeah, the starting pitching again, like it's one of those things where I think because of the struggles of Manoa early in the season, that was so, um, dominant in terms of the discourse that you were like, sort of not seeing like, well, uh, Chris Bass is having a great season and Kevin Gosman's doing everything he thought he would do. And Jose Brios and Cucucci are having really great bounce backs. Like, um, I think that for whatever reason, there's just been some sort of like, parts of the season that have not gone well and that's kind of and they haven't gone well in a really bad way I guess and so that's just been kind of dominant and so I think there's been some things that have been going really well and they haven't um, captured the same attention whether it's just like you sort of just take for granted that your pitching keeps you in games and you're just continuously frustrated the offense is offense isn't putting the game away Um, but yeah the pitching has been great this year some tough decisions to come in that bullpen as well like you mentioned with when Bobachet comes back what what do you do with a a davis schneider and maybe a santiago espinal when that bullpen gets healthy uh you know chad green had his fifth rehab appearance on saturday as well and still like nobody can hit that guy even though the velocity is only at like 94 um so we'll see what what that looks like as well some tough decisions coming in the bullpen caitlin uh they'll open up an extra bullpen slot at some point we think if they go away from the six-man rotation we are on um we're just about to enter the last turn through. Uh, there are seven games left in this kind of six-man rotation experiment, and then they'll have three off days in a span uh, of like eight days coming out of this 17 and 17 stretch. Um, we'll get a second look at Hyunjin Ryu tonight. Coming off of a, a first outing where he was hit pretty frequently, but there was some pitch efficiency. The curveball looked pretty good. Where are your expectations for Hyunjin Ryu tonight? Or what are you looking for in terms of, Hey, he he's progressing well in his second start back. Yeah, I think it's more, um, you know, of what he did in the last outing against Baltimore, which was like, you know, a, a tough team. You'd think that Cleveland not as offensively strong of a team might be a better matchup for him. Um, so that'll be key. Just kind of watching, um, can he put guys away or can he limit damage, things like that. Whether he can go six innings, that's the thing um, you're wondering as well. And, um, you know, pitch efficiency, like you said, he was pretty efficient um, against Baltimore. So you're just kind of looking for that. And you mentioned like the six-man rotation. Like that's interesting. Like I don't, I don't totally know what they're going to do there. Um, and, you know, to be fair, they haven't really – answered questions on what they're going to do. I mean, obviously like they're keeping it pretty close um, to the chest and I don't know, like 
if they have a plan or if they're just seeing how things go. Um, Cause I don't know what the obvious move there is. Like there's no one in the rotation necessarily that you're like, Oh, this is just obviously let's move them to the bullpen. Um, because like you said earlier, and like we've talked about, like the bullpen is really good. You're going to have more arms than you need um, more really good arms than you need. And there's no one that you're, you want to bump out of the bullpen. Um, there's not really a weak link there right now. There's not going to be. And so like, I don't know what they do. Like if, it, there's not really an obvious option either. Like I think Manoa's looked better um, in his last um, starts, and given how important he is to the organization, like I think you'd want to continue that process and continue building that. And then like, yeah, Kikuchi, could he go to the bullpen? Of course he could. Like he throws hard and he's lefty, but he's been a great starter for them. Like he's been one of their best starters uh, over the last month. So he's absolutely earned every right to be in the rotation. So that to me is really interesting. Like I haven't thought about it deeply. And I, I always say with these things, like when there's like a tough roster decision, like sometimes I don't, like I don't think of the, what they eventually do. I'm like, Oh, they could do this, this or this. And there's always like a, option D that I don't think of um, whether it's like someone was expecting a baby and I didn't know when they go on the paternity <laughs> leave or something like sometimes that happens. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen here. Like uh, I don't know what you do because you can't really like option like Ryu or something like that. Like he's not going to go pitch in AAA. <laughs> so I don't know. Like I, I'm very curious about what's going to happen there um, in terms of how, because at the, when it comes to September and you're playing all these important games, like you're going to want your best pitchers out there. You're not going to want to carry on with a six man rotation. You're not going to want to have a, a short bullpen. Like you're going to need all hands on deck. Um, and you want Kevin Gosman out there every fifth day, not every sixth day. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's an interesting spot too, with the three off days over a stretch of eight of eight days where that's really nice because your bullpen will be a little extra rested. You can maybe get away with only a seven man bullpen a little easier during that stretch. If you did want to punt the decision, but yeah, suddenly you're looking at like, Oh, well this guy might not pitch for like 10 days. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know there's a long-term benefit of that. I, I think it's, you know, to use the Dan Schulmanism, the, these things have a way of working themselves out, whether it's, you know, Hey, there's someone like Trevor Richards dealing with, the neck inflammation we're unaware of and they'll like they're like hey let's just get you two weeks to rest since we have all these off days and then september the rosters expand so we don't even have to deal with it there's always something like you said caitlin there, there's always something um although the paternity list ones are only three days at a time so uh <laughs> they might need something a little better there uh just to close out that thought by the way uh thomas hatch and jordan luplo were both claimed off of waivers uh this weekend by the pirates and the twins respectively mitch white was not he clears waivers and was outright to AAA. Um, were you a little surprised given that like we've heard a couple times this year, the team had really liked the progress Thomas Hatch was making at AAA, especially with the changeup. They trusted him in some spots. Were you a little surprised he got the DFA? A little bit, um, you know, because I feel like there was also an opportunity to, um, you know, trade him very recently. And if there was some interest, you know, I wonder why that didn't work out. You never know. I mean, teams probably knew the blue jays they know what's up they know there's going to be a roster crunch here and there and they probably can see the math and say like well we're not going to trade him for you because um we know he's going to be dfa'd in a few days so we'll just wait for that like teams kind of know what's up and i think there's you know even trent thornton like i know in the past blue jays have you know floated trent thornton's name around but he's kind of been on the edge of a dfa for a long time too and obviously um, he was, uh, well, I guess he was traded um, to the Mariners, yeah. but I mean, teams kind of know um, when there's like a roster crunch and stuff like that. So 
um, yeah, like I guess I was a little surprised just because he had just been up and yeah, it wasn't great, but he was also in like mop of duty and, you know, it's against the Baltimore Orioles. It's a really good team. Um, you know, I thought it was kind of a bit of a, a sad ending for Thomas mm-hmm. Hatch. He's been in the organization kind of a long time and he has been really liked in the organization, made good adjustments um, and was looking a lot better this year, but um, it, it, it's just the weird business side of baseball. It happens and, you know, hopefully he can go on with the pirates and have some success there. He's probably known, obviously Ben Sherrington knows him. Mm. And so, um, you know, hopefully he finds his footing there. He will certainly get more opportunity than he was getting uh, in Toronto. Trent Thornton, by the way, who had uh, a nice start with Seattle and then uh, not so great. Trent Thornton in high leverage on the weekend, as you you might be shocked to hear Caitlin against the uh, the Angels, although the Angels can't do anything. So the, the Mariners end up sweeping that series anyway. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. Uh, enjoy this Guardian series. Thank you. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Uh, head over there and check out all... Her great work, not on the road for the, the Red Sox series, but still some some very good stuff coming out of that series. Um, also interesting to contrast, you know, the piece yesterday after the Jays pick up the sweep versus the piece heading into the series where the, the offense was, as Caitlin put it, stuck in neutral uh, and the players were saying, hey, we've got to perform better. We've got to execute better. Uh, yeah, you saw that over the weekend a little bit. The first time since I want to, I saw the tweet and I apologize. I think it was, James and T.O. who um, posted this. But the first time since 2004, the Jays had 14 hits in three straight games. You would like a little more than five runs to come from that on Saturday, but you take what you can. Um, so, again, a couple of updates there in that Thomas Hatch claimed by the Pirates, Jordan Luplo claimed by, by the Twins, Mitch White cleared waivers and was outrighted to Buffalo. Uh, Chad Green made his fifth rehab appearance Saturday with the Bisons. Looked pretty good. The velocity was only at 94, was down a bit from his prior uh, outing, but the results are pretty terrific. So he is getting closer. Uh, It sounded like the team will want to get him in a back-to-back situation before uh, he enters the promotion mix. You also probably just want to slow play this a little bit, given the the bullpen crunch you're going to have and, um, you know, all the off days ahead you have and things like that. Danny Jansen, uh, we will find out more about that tonight because Alejandro Kirk's caught a couple games in a row uh, and Jansen is dealing with wrist inflammation. He had played since Shintaro Fujinami hit him on the wrist, uh, but he's dealing with some inflammation there. Kevin Kiermaier also had to get eight stitches yesterday after colliding with the wall. He's day-to-day as well. Speaking of Shintaro Fujinami, you didn't think I was going there, did you? Uh, Pitching Ninja has been all over Fujinami because he hit 103 on the radar gun this weekend that's ah, nothing the jays have jordan hicks now uh we're gonna take a break when we come back pitching ninja rob friedman joins us uh we'll whip around baseball a little bit but we'll get a little deeper on the arsenals of jordan hicks and Yenesis cabrera we'll take a deeper look at hyunjin ryu's debut and what was maybe a step forward for alec Mano on the weekend pitching ninja next on jays talk plus on the sports radio network and sports at 360 Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Top Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, There were a lot of Toronto Blue Jays highlights on the weekend. But I think the clip that most people saw around baseball 
was uh, Jose Ramirez, who the Jays will see for the next four games, minus whatever games he's suspended for. Uh, catching Tim Anderson in the front. Tim Anderson squared up and got squared down. Uh, it was uh, was quite the highlight, and our next guest had some fun with it uh, on Twitter, as he does. It's Rob Friedman of Pitching Ninja, pitching analyst for Peacock and Fox. Uh, of course, the Pitching Ninja Twitter channel, as well as the shop PitchingNinja.com. Rob, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. How about you? I am. I mean, I'm doing better than Tim Anderson, who uh, who ate one and then uh, tweeted through it in a major way last night. Uh, I know you did some tongue in cheek breakdown uh, on the Pitching Ninja Twitter feed. Uh, what did you make of the the technique there from Jose Ramirez? Uh, you know, I, I I had always I hadn't really thought about it, but now that I think about it, I don't know that Jose Ramirez is high on the list of guys that I, I'd try that with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought it was an excellent, you know, right hook. I put a tail on it. You can see the movement of it. And I don't know, is it more a sweeper or a sleeper? What do you got? I, I like the term sleeper. Yeah, we can. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great one. Um, not to make too much light of, you know, fighting in baseball, but it was quite the... Uh, quite the highlight we'll see this series if jose ramirez uh, gets a couple games and if that changes this jays guardian series at all uh rob moving to a, a more serious side of this jays guardian series curious as to your take on a couple of the blue jays trade deadline acquisitions i know that jordan hicks is a guy who makes his way into the pitching ninja feed pretty often because he throws 102 he's got some cool movement on that sinker uh what do you like about jordan hicks as an addition to this blue jays bullpen I mean, I love it. At his best, he's one of the filthiest pitches, pitchers in baseball. He only gets in trouble with command, and if he doesn't command it, then you know, it, you got to be patient. It could be a bit of a roller coaster. But stuff-wise, I mean, he's touched 104 this year with you know 18 inches of run, and he's got a kind of nasty slider too. So I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan of his for years. But you got to be patient because he will have those roller coaster outings. He certainly will. We've seen one of them already, but uh, a couple of really effective ones as well. When it comes to guys like this who throw so hard, obviously the velocity reading is what we're going to see first. And, you know, hey, the harder you can throw that fastball, I'm sure the harder it is to hit when you're uh, sitting in there in the box. But beyond just the velocity, these guys who like Hicks, like Fujinami in Baltimore now, like uh, Yohan Duran, what do what does that type of pitcher have to do to maximize the velocity and, and like its impact when it comes to you know also finding a pitch with movement or playing off of that elite fastball? Well, someone like Hicks actually combines the movement with it with with the heat, and I think people forget how much movement he gets. I mean, we're talking you know sixteen to up to twenty inches of run on his fastball, so it, it's tough, and it makes all your other pitches better. Obviously, if you're throwing hard. You have some movement with it. It's, you know, Duran's got multiple pitches that's just incredible. <laughs> Fuji's command can be an issue, but he's got really good stuff. Um, so what it does is it basically makes a hitter, and you can imagine you have only a fraction of a second to determine what pitch it is, and the faster it is, the better your secondary pitches are. So you can throw sliders and splitters and everything else, and if they look like your fastball, hitters are going to look stupid, and fans are going to yell, why did you swing at that? <laughs> But, but if you know how hard it is to hit a fastball at that speed and how early you have to swing, you can figure out why they swung at that. They have to guess. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. Um, and it, it leads to some 
terrible uh, swings. It's uh, a tough way to go. But like you said, you, if you're sitting, if you're trying to defend against 102 and then, you know, 93 comes in there, it's going to, it's going to throw you up. I'm, I'm curious, Rob, in your time as a pitching analyst, we've obviously seen radar ratings, radar readings rather go up. And, you know, there was a, someone posted a fan leaderboard last week. Sometime it was like, well, if you were the second hardest thrower in baseball in 2016, you'd now be 10th. And that's just the way that velocity has kind of changed and been prioritized in the game. You in an analyst role, what has that adjustment been like where, hey, 99 is still good and still cool, but it isn't quite what it was maybe a few years ago relative to other bullpen, bullpen arms in the league. Um, how have you had to adjust, you know, how you incorporate velocity into your analysis? Well, I always find velocity cool. Like, obviously, you know, 99 is less cool than it was when it was you know, top-tier velo. But 99 with movement is still incredible. We had a pitch from Abner Uribe yesterday oh. that was one of the – I mean, I don't know if I've seen a filthier pitch this year. That was incredible. Yeah, that was um, the, 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 what, the two-seamer that, that ducked wave. It looked like an inverted slider, basically, rather than, uh, rather than just a, a pure two-seamer. Yeah, and I, I was just going through his out, his appearance, and I don't think anybody even commented on it. The announcers weren't paying attention. I looked at it like, what? Is, what in the world was that? So there are times where still the you know ninety nine, which is still really fast, combined with that movement, is jaw dropping. Like it's it's incredible. But you're right. Like you, you have to do more to impress viewers now because just throwing a hundred doesn't necessarily do it anymore. Even though hitting a hundred is still really really hard. But we've been able to teach velocity so well that there are just more people throwing that hard, and we value it more, too, because it makes everything else better. Right, so there's a, you're teaching it more, and there's a selection bias of, hey, we're going we're gonna to give the guys with the elite velocity more patience and try to target those guys more. Um, you know, I, I kind of asked that question in part because the Jays recently optioned Nate Pearson, a guy who I know you've been high on in the past, and you liked some of the breaking stuff that complements the 98-mile-an-hour fastball. I think it touched as high as 101.6 this year. Um, when you saw what was happening with Nate Pearson. And I think we, you know, the, the stuff itself wasn't too, too bad. It was just the, the location went away from it a little bit, but is he a guy you think of when we have these conversations about, Hey, if you came up five years ago, throwing 98, 99, that would look a little differently or we'd evaluate you a little differently than coming up now and still needing that work on the curveball and the slider. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. The other thing that, that people have to remember is, it's for harder throwing pitchers. A lot of times location and command are the last things to come because it's just tough to put everything together. They're throwing really hard. Don't necessarily know where it's going to go. And sometimes bigger guys too develop later. So if you look at guys like Nolan Ryan's career, Randy Johnson's career, Sandy Koufax's career, they all started really slow. And if you didn't have patience with them, you would have traded them, given up on them, told them, Hey, find another job or throw slower. It, it, it's something that comes with time and, and pitchers dial it in later. So as a, I'm just for fans. I remember like Blake Trinan, who's one of the filthiest pitchers in baseball when he first was pitching for the, for the Nats fans were all over him. Like, you stink. You get, and then all of a sudden it became unhittable. And like, you guys got to have patience. The key is having patience with, with these pitchers, Nate Pearson, you know, if he, he just got to work on command, getting his stuff over, you'll be fine, but it's tough because, you know, these guys also can blow games while you're having that patience. So you have to do both. 
Uh, in terms of the just the kind of go full circle here in terms of Blue Jays deadline acquisitions, uh, Yenesis Cabrera, who who does some of that from the left side, is he a guy you put in that same kind of bin of hey, the stuff is enough. You you just got to be patient here and wait it out a little bit. Still, just twenty six. Yeah, I mean he does have electric stuff and electric K celebrations too. Like I'm <laughs> a fan of watching him pitch because he loves to throw. Um, but yeah, he's been up and down and, and, you know, there, again, there's a fine line, but you, you can have patience. It's hard to have patience with guys in a pennant race, right? Like, yeah. you know, you have to balance it. I, I love the idea of having patience. I'm very patient, but you have to win games and you want to make the postseason. You don't want to have patience at this time. You need the guys that will do it for you day in and day out. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough spot. I mean, Cabrera is going to run into a spot here shortly too, where he has options and the Jays are heading into a bit of a bullpen crunch. Um, part of that bullpen crunch is that uh, Chad green has made a couple of rehab appearances now, and they've gone well from a, a results standpoint, from a locating standpoint, um, Rob, when you are, you know, if you, if you take a look at a pitcher who's on the comeback trail, especially one who's a little older, like a Chad green coming off of a Tommy John, um, just how much are you looking at the radar readings and how much, are you putting into that in terms of, Hey, the results are good in the minor leagues, but Chad green at 94 is maybe different than Chad green was at 96 prior to uh, the elbow stuff starting to come up. And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot about Chad green specifically, but this type of guy, as a guy works his way back from injury, um, how important to you are those velo readings in the rehab starts? Yeah, that, that's a great question because they're, they're obviously important. You want to see the metrics back to where he was. But I also like the experience. I mean, having a guy like Chad Green who's big, been in big games, who has that experience, if he can get back a couple of ticks, you know, he's a guy that you can depend on, less of a crapshoot. Um, but the other thing is with Tommy John, a lot of times, again, command is one of the last things that come back. He may hit his velo numbers, but you're still getting used to, you know, coming back from injury and your elbow may be a little different. It, that can that can affect you. So I, I don't want you don't want to rush somebody back too fast. You want to make sure the commands are as well. So speaking of guys who have come back from Tommy John surgery and have mastered the command side of things, uh, Hyunjin Ryu came back last week. He's going to make his second start uh, tonight. I know you put a couple clips up of the curveball from his debut. Um, Look, I mean, he's he's about to turn 36. He's coming back from Tommy John. Our expectations can be reasonable here. Uh, but I, I wonder, Rob, in your time covering pitching, where does for you rank just in terms of guys you love watching throw? Because, you know, it, it's hard to think of many guys who check the kind of art of pitching box better than Ryu over the years. Yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it, too. There are throwers and there are pitchers. Ryu is a pitcher he doesn't throw particularly hard he keeps people off balance can look at his best locates incredibly well and can mix his pitches all to you know, give you any pitch at any time and makes it that makes it tough because in hitters the more they see velocity get used to velocity so there's something to be said about having things below hitting speed as well you know like a chris bassett or a or a ryu like those are those are important things they are. So we'll see, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously a cutoff at some point of, you know, how good can, or how low can the, the stuff get where, where 
it no longer matters if you can locate and, you know, pitch sequence and things like that. But we've seen, you know, guys last pretty, pretty long as Finesca. Jamie Moore pitched till he was like 115 years old. Uh, so we'll see how that one goes. Uh, Rob, last Jays one for you here. Um, Alec Manoa was the winner of the Pitching Ninja 2022 Trash Talk Award. He's obviously had a, a bit of an up and down year here. You came on the show and talked about it with me while he was struggling a little bit. Um, last start on the weekend, certainly from a results perspective, a, a huge step in the right direction. What do you, what have you seen from Manoa? Or what would you like to see from Manoa just to continue to say, hey, yeah, he's on the right path? Well, for one, Manoa is one of my favorite dudes in baseball. Like, I, I just like him. He, he's, we, we've, uh, you know, been kind of friendly over the last several years. He actually learned a slider from, from my pitching ninja account. And the thing that I've noticed over his past few outings is that his slider is back to being filthy. So that's one step. Like earlier in the year, I was like, it's kind of like dull. I thought his slider it just wasn't as sharp as, as it had been. And now it seems like that pitch has gotten a movement back. I saw some two-seamers that also had their movement back. So for me, the big thing with, uh, with Manoa is command. And if he can command it, um, with that movement, he'll be back to right back to where he was. Like I would definitely, again, another guy, he just lost it for a little bit. He'll be fine. He's a competitor. He'll be fine. I hope so. And we'll see how that continues to play out here as the Jays work a, a six man rotation during this stretch with Manoa back up from the minors, Ryu uh, back from injury. Um, Rob, so Everyone knows you as Pitching Ninja, of course, a pitching analyst, the Twitter feed, the the, the merch shop at PitchingNinja.com, the YouTube channel. But you also have the Flat Ground app, which is aimed at helping, I mean, pitchers initially, but there's also a hitter's version, um, you know, just, just helping people access and, and leverage social media to help players and especially young players develop. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that Flat Ground app and how it can help some younger pitchers? Yeah, absolutely. So... Basically, what I decided to do was, you know, I, I had a large social media following and I had people ask me all the time, high school players, as well as like, you know, guys trying to make it into major league organizations saying, hey, can you tweet me out? Can you get me some attention? What I decided to do was make sure that everybody that was looking for a spot could get seen by folks. So I started flat ground app for pitchers and flat ground hitting for hitters. And basically, if you're a high school player or even a pro player trying to make it into a major league organization, you can put your stuff out there. It'll be seen by scouts and, and coaches all around the country. And it's been incredible. I think I've had like 40 plus pitchers get signed by major league organizations from flat ground, as well as innumerable college guys, like colleges are all over that account and it's all free. Like I don't, I just do it to help the baseball community to make sure that kids that baseball isn't, just a rich kid sport that you can get seen no matter who you are and no matter where you are. I think that that last part is a, is a great point as well. That level of, of access and visibility that social media allows us to have to, you know, we hope level the playing field uh, a little bit. You've also, you know, your pinned tweet has some resources for pitchers as well. Uh, the pitch grips, which I, I mean, I'm not using them to pitch, but I like going in there and just looking at some of the, <laughs> some of the different grips in the Dropbox. And, and then you also have kind of a, a mental skills uh, link in your, in your pinned tweet there as well, a, a Dropbox with some, you know, quotes and, and philosophy of pitching stuff. Um, how, in your experience, how big a part of developing as a pitcher is that mental side? Because I, I personally could imagine 
a scenario where, you know, I'm trying to work on this grip or I'm trying to add this velocity and the mental side of it almost gets deprioritized because you can get, you know, the, the velocity or spin or something like that is more measurable. The mental side is a little more difficult. Is that a challenge we face in baseball from a player development standpoint, um, balancing the development of those mental skills as well as the physical skills? Oh, a thousand percent. And, and it, the important thing is it's not one size fits all either. You may have somebody who functions really well aggressively. Think of like a Max Scherzer or somebody that's real chill, like a Kyle Hendricks. So there's more than one way to get it done. But a lot of times, and that's why I preach patience and fans, you know, while fans want to win, when you're putting extra pressure on your pitcher, there are some guys that are sitting there and they, they, they're hard on themselves. And by putting that extra pressure, you're inadvertently sending them into these zones where they can't possibly, you know, they, they have to overcome stuff that you're putting on them as fans. So it's, it's, I understand why fans do it, but you also, that's why I like the patience, you know, aspect of it, controlled patience. You know, you can't be too patient, but you, you have to be able to, you know, appreciate development as a fan sometimes too. Um, but yes, mental game is incredibly important. There's so many different ways to do it. It's a, it's a great resource to have up there, Rob. And, you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of high school age kids and parents and things like that, and, and sure the coaches who, who get the results from it. Um, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who really appreciate uh, the work you do beyond just posting uh, some cool highlights like Abner Uribe for us. Uh, thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. It's great. Rob Friedman, Pitching Ninja. Of course, you know the Pitching Ninja Twitter and YouTube account. You can check out PitchingNinja.com uh, for some gear there as well. I was actually with a friend on the weekend at Christy Pitts Park. I'm like, oh, Pitching Ninja shirt. Cool. Uh, the IBL Leafs yesterday tried, by the way, to match the Blue Jays. Like, I, I have the the game on the radio with Ben Wagner in my ear, and then I'm watching the IBL Leafs, and, and the IBL Leafs were up at 1.13 to 1 as well, or 13 to 2 or something like that. Uh, fun one. Uh, always good to uh to check in on that local club especially as they're up for sale right now there's been some cool uh some cool notes in uh in a couple of newspapers over the last little bit about uh the sale of that team and what's required of a new owner if a new owner does purchase it um based on the estate so uh if you are a fan of IBL baseball or have, have or haven't checked out games at Christie Pitts um that's not going to change the the stipulations of when that sale comes, is that still going to be there? Still going to be free admission? Sure, maybe you start charging for beers or something like that, um, but always a good way to spend a, a summer afternoon. No pitching ninja for IBL games, but you can still see some uh, some pretty good baseball. We're going to take a break. On the other side, we're going to be joined by uh, a couple of my favorite people to talk to, a couple of people who I had on way back in the day um, when I was young and I, I don't know what the, what is the term, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Anyway, when I hosted the Beyond the Box Score podcast at Beyond the Box Score, a couple of people I had on then were Jay Jaffe, who's now Fangraphs, and Louis Paulus, who uh, was recently with the Phillies front office. He's a lifelong Guardians fan and is now just doing independent baseball research, uh, has a sub stack as well at the Lose Letter. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to him about his career path. So if you are someone who... Uh, is finding this this podcast or is listening to this show and you have an interest in maybe getting into to baseball, especially on the, the data and analysis side, uh, we'll pick Louis' brain on, on what his career path has been like and, and any advice he has for those people. Uh, we'll talk to Jay Jaffe next, though. We'll take a look at the weekend in the American League that was, and we'll take a look at Jay's replacement-level killers series because that has a lot of Cleveland Guardians notes in it because they've played a lot of sub-replacement level guys this year, uh, but also 
I think it kind of highlights the importance of having guys like Davis Schneider come up and come through in big spots so that the 26 man role on your, on your roster is not a big old negative that sinks you a little bit. Jay Jaffe and Louis Paulus in the second hour as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports at radio network and sports at three sixty. breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports, the fan morning show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, Jay's with a sweep of the Red Sox on the weekend. Pretty big impact on the old playoff odds over at Fangraphs. The Red Sox entered the weekend with a 23.2% chance of making the playoffs. Based on those Fangraphs odds, dropped all the way to 10.7%. The Jays absorbed all of that. And more. Their odds went from 62.6 to 74.9. Uh, a little early to be looking at those swings day to day. I know uh, my pal Ricky Hart would uh, not love the referencing of playoff odds whatsoever, but this is the time of year to check in occasionally. And it's always fun to see how uh, a sweep in either direction dramatically changes things. Speaking of fan graphs, we're joined now by Jay Jaffe of Fan Graphs. Jay, how are you, man? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? I am uh, I'm doing well. I, I'm curious. I know you tweeted the other day you got a bad beat on Immaculate Grid with someone who had managed a team and said, I've had a couple where trying to get as low percentage as possible, pick like a prospect who was in a trade and was at one point in that yeah. organization. Oh, uh, do we have to come up with like an even nerdier version of the world's nerdiest baseball game? <laughs> no, I don't think we do. It's But you you got to be careful because that's that's a trap to fall into. Um, you know, when you think about a prospect who gets traded and trying to remember whether he actually debuted with that team before being dealt or not. Um, I've, I've wrecked a couple grids that way. Um, I've also, the, the one that I, the one that I messed up uh, was trying to remember whether Phil Garner had played for the uh, Brewers or just managed them uh, in addition to playing for the Pirates. And, and I guessed wrong. I was a little outside my comfort zone on that one in terms of the, <laughs> the certainty of the guess. Um, and just turfed it. It was it was bad. <laughs> That's a tough one. Phil Garner, all time mustache though. If they ever have a like, I this guy had a mustache. Oh, call him as well. Uh, he'd be good there. So uh, Jay, it was a, a pretty busy weekend around baseball for a lot of reasons. A couple of big swings in the American League playoff race. Um, the Jays here in Toronto, well, not here in Toronto, but the Toronto Blue Jays in Boston swept the Red Sox, uh, established a, a more firm hold on that that third wildcard position for now. I'm curious. I know the deadline isn't, isn't too far behind us, but at a high level, you know, 10,000 feet view here, what are your impressions of, of where the Toronto Blue Jays are at right now? Yeah, they're. I think they're in good shape. Um, you know, they're not. Uh, they're they're not a, an immediate threat to take over the division, obviously, um, and they probably have too much distance, uh, given that they're in third place behind uh, the Orioles and the Rays. Uh, but they've solidified, uh, you know, a, a wild card spot. And uh, uh, like you said, the odds for them are, are, are right now about seventy five percent. You know, the way you're gonna the way you're going to increase those odds is beat the snot out of your division rivals. And, and, and that's what they did. Um, those, those, uh, those three wins, including that, that very strange ending on, uh, uh, on, on Saturday, certainly, uh, um, Delta Red Sox, a, a serious blow. And uh, all this is happening while, while the Yankees have, uh, 
uh, you know, continued to sputter um, in recent weeks. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think Toronto's in good shape. They, they didn't sit still at the deadline. They added a couple of useful pieces. I don't, you know, I think the, the Jordan Hicks, the bullpen piece is probably the big one. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I like, I like where they're at right now. We, we both mentioned the, the playoff odds there a little bit. Is this late enough in the year now where you're checking that pretty regularly at fan graphs? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, not on a daily basis. I, I probably reference it on a daily basis if I'm writing about a team. And, you know, right now, for example, I'm about to uh, publish a piece on the Diamondbacks and what's happened to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, you, you want to get a, a feel for um, whether the uh, distance and traffic are surmountable, uh, you know, when a team is back. And, and I think, you know, when you look at a team like the Blue Jays, 75% odds, that's a, that's a good place to be. Um, you know, they're they're uh, you know most most of that, almost all of that is is uh, um, just in terms of winning the division. I mean, sorry, in, in, in terms of making you know making it as a wild card team, but um, uh, it's still, you know, uh, there are a lot of teams that that would be uh, uh, happy to trade places with them right now. There's we'll see one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, they're the sixth. They're sixth in terms of the uh, the odds in terms of the American League, and there's a huge drop off. Uh, from them at 75.6% to the Mariners at 28.2%. So, um, you know, they've, they've got a bit of a cushion there, um, you know, to, uh, to, to, to stay on top of this two and a half game lead uh, in, in, in the standings. And you, you mentioned one of the obviously sweeping the Red Sox uh, does a lot of damage to their hods because the Red Sox were chasing you. Um, you mentioned the Yankees. You you wrote about them on Friday for Fangraphs. And now you know, we, we have to navigate the Domingo Herman part of this uh, differently than, than a pure, you know, roster build or injury thing. But what, what, it, what had you made of the like this Anthony Rizzo thing is bizarre where it sounds like he's just been playing through concussion like symptoms since, uh, since may, if you follow the timeline here, um, you know, maybe, maybe we give them more benefit of the doubt, but where the Yankees are in general, uh, it's, it's fairly messy. Is there any room for optimism on the Yankees fan side that, that this thing can be steered out of, or are those two losses, you know, obviously they're not quite captured in playoff odds yet, but, but to you are those, you know, as close to a death knell as we get this early. Um, You know, I wouldn't rule them out yet. I think that, um, you know, there are some positive signs, you know, Aaron judge is back after missing uh, uh, eight weeks. um, And that's a big deal. Uh, Nestor Cortez just came back after uh, uh, missing the, over over two months and looked great on uh, on Saturday. I was there. He struck out eight Astros in four innings and uh, uh, in, in a three one win. Um, you know, so those are positive developments. Um, I you know I think it, they're still they're playing from behind here and they've got to have a lot of things to go to, to go right for them. Uh, their rotation is pretty banged up. Um, but at least in getting those those useful pieces back from injuries uh, and replacing uh, you know some underperformers, uh, I think that's good news. And on the other hand, they did pass up a uh, the deadline uh, without making uh, any real impactful uh, additions. Uh, Kenyon Middleton, uh, reliever was you know middle reliever was really the only uh, guy they added to the big league roster. So. Um, you know, there are other teams that put themselves in, in, in better positions to, to to win. So I don't think the Yankees are out of it, but, uh, you know, they are where they are. And I think the odds uh, at this point, which say that uh, they've got a 15% chance of making the playoffs, reflect the fact that they have 
to go on a serious run if they're going to if they're going to get back in the picture. No team is out until they are officially out. Uh, any odds greater than zero point zero 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 are still you know it's still a, a possibility. The Los Angeles Angels though did their best over the last couple of days to erase the rest of theirs. They're down to they went from. Uh, 10.8% chance, which was already a bit of a long shot. Um, but, you know, they added a, at the trade deadline. They have the greatest player any of us will ever watch. Uh, you would think that they have, you know, at least a chance of making a run. They get swept over four games by the Mariners down to just 2.2% at this point. Um, Jay, man, I, I guess just what do you, how do you feel about where the Angels are, their their effort to push pieces in and where this puts us as a, as a baseball enjoying community when it comes to Shohei Otani, his proximity to the playoffs and what this winter could look like for him. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I can't fault the angels for, for doing what they did because I think if, if you trade Otani, you're never going to get him back. Um, you know, whereas, you know, from that vantage point, uh, if you keep him, you know, you add some pieces, you go on a playoff, you know, you, you, you claw your way back into the playoff picture. I think you at least, you know, you at least get to entertain the conversation. Uh, you know, money, I think, is still going to be the primary uh, uh, driver of all of this. Um, you know, and the Angels do have the, the proven ability to handle uh, Otani in a six-man rotation. It's the other things they haven't done so well in there. You know, they got decent players, um, you know, considering that it was a pretty – uh, seller heavy market. Um, you know, they, they did try to take care of a lot of their needs, but man, they've had so many injuries, especially in that infield and losing Mike Trout. I mean, just so many things have gone against them uh, this season. And, and this is just, you know, this, this past weekend, uh, losing four in a row and losing six in a row overall, uh, four in a row to the Mariners who are obviously, you know, in that, in that race. Um, just some some bad fortune and the fact that Otani himself has been you know he had to take himself out after four innings in, in his start uh you know he's he's uh running on fumes here a little bit so um it, it's a tough break but I, I you know I think we'll see a very interesting winner here where where uh there are a lot of teams who are going to pursue him I don't I think there's really only a few teams that are realistic uh landing spots for him right now uh, with the Dodgers and the Giants perhaps being the two most, because I think the, 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 uh, uh, the West coast, he's, you know, he's more likely to stay on the West coast, um, you know, and uh, he needs a big spending team in order to uh, uh, convince him uh, that they can build uh, a roster around him or have already have a roster in place around him. So, okay, so Jay, uh, that, those are kind of the, the wild card. That's the wild card picture, rather, some of the teams that are falling off there. You also, at Fangraphs, uh, I, I don't know how you, you got the fortune like this when it's uh, it's kind of next person up over the course of trade deadline week. You got the right about Verlander, Flaherty, uh, the Framber Valdez, no hitter. You, you did the work on the teams at the very top of the American League as well. When it comes to the Astros, Rangers, Orioles, and, and we'll – include the Rays in there as well. Um, how do you, how do you feel those four teams shake out in terms of, you know, whether they're in tears or, or who you feel most confident about uh, the rest of the way here? Well, I mean, obviously the, 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 the two big additions, uh, um, you know, from the starting pitchers with the Astros or Rangers going to the AL West. I, I, I like the Astros a lot more in, in that race now, even though, uh, um, you know the Rangers. I think you know have uh, 
uh, have been the stronger team to date. I think you know, if you look at the two starting pitchers, Justin Verlander is in better shape right now than than Max Scherzer. He's you know Verlander has adjusted uh, his uh, um, uh, his arsenal and his uh, his pitch usage a bit um, to reflect where he is now. He's no longer going upstairs uh, with that four seed fastball. Um, Scherzer, I think, is still coping with. Um, you know, diminished physical ability right now, and, and things have not been going great for him. Uh, he's been erratic from start to start, whereas, whereas Verlander has been trending in the right direction. Um, you know, the Orioles, I thought that they missed an opportunity to make a bigger addition to their rotation. Um, you know, I don't know. If they, they they definitely seemed like they had the, they have the prospects uh, to get Verlander or um, Scherzer, but um, – it doesn't seem like they like they uh, worked too hard to, uh, to to try to do that. Uh, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes, of course, but um, nothing in the philosophy of, of what uh, uh, what we've seen from Mike Elias, their general manager, suggests uh, that they were particularly aggressive in their pursuit. They're you know I think convinced that this is the opening of a long longer window, and they don't want to compromise their ability. So I think they're I think they're you know maybe uh, you know Jack Flaherty. Uh, obviously he had a good first start, but I don't know that he is going to be a difference maker in that race. And that's a tough spot for the Orioles where they needed a difference maker at the top of the rotation, but obviously they're not willing to, uh, you know, disrupt the the timeline or the patience for that just quite yet. Um, so Jay, before trade deadline week rolled around, there was replacement level killers week at, at Fangraphs. It's it's It was a tremendous series. So for anyone who doesn't know, Jay, look at the teams that have gotten the least or framed differently, the most negative from different positions around the diamond. The idea here being that, yes, it's very, very important to have great players. Having great players is a really good way to win. But another important part of winning and making the playoffs is the absence of bad players. Um, You went through, you broke it down kind of position by position. Um, The Jays are about to play the Cleveland guardians for four and the guardians haven't been terrible. They're 54 and 58. They they've been outscored by a couple of runs on the season, but they popped up on the replacement level killers at designated hitter catcher shortstop center field and right field five of the positions on the diamond. You, your analysis was like, yeah, the guardians are not getting, they're not getting enough. They're not getting anything from these spots um, for a team to, have five players on your replacement level killer series and not be a complete disaster in win loss record. Um, I mean, I think if we were going to make a Jose Ramirez MVP case, that that's, that's pretty much it right there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, look, it, it helps that the, uh, the division is, you know, is just so bad. I mean, the, the twins are leading it. They've, uh, they've won four in a row, so they're now, they're now five, five games over 500. By the time I was putting this together, um, you know, they were just about a you know uh, a game or two over 500. And and uh, um, yeah, if you want to if you want to understand why a team that's uh, um, uh, got five holes in it is uh, not completely out of it, it's because it only takes about a five you know slightly above 500 record to win the division. So. Um, yeah, Jose Ramirez, though, he's great, um, even uh, putting uh, this weekend's festivities <laughs> aside as far as uh, what happened with, with Tim Anderson. I mean, he's a great underrated player who is on, uh, I, I believe, to be a Hall of Fame track. Um, 
You know, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's been uh, perennially in MVP discussions, um, hasn't won it yet, but uh, uh, has a bunch of top three finishes and, and uh, um, you know, really has been uh, an anchor for that team uh, over the last several years. So there have been, you know, in reading your replacement level killers and playing around with the uh, the leaderboards myself, uh, there have been 194 players uh, who have been worth negative wins above replacement uh, so far this year. Now, some of that is like you come up for a couple games and you go 0 for 6 or whatever, you get the negative 0.1. Um, right. the, the Blue Jays have... A couple, Paul DeYoung in his first five-game sample here, uh, of course, o- only hitting, you know, 100. So so he's going to pop up there. Santiago Espinal and Kevin Biggio have been slight negatives but haven't played a lot. So all told, the Jays actually don't show up anywhere in your replacement-level killer series. In your experience and your your time doing this exercise, how important is that? Like when, when a team comes out and it's just like, gee, they don't have like any dead spot, even if it's not spectacular performance, how much does that add to your confidence in a team's ability to maybe not win a playoff series because bench guys aren't playing as much, but to get there in the first place? Yeah, it's important. I mean, you know, you don't want to have – you you, you, want to, you want to go into – uh, a race, knowing that you've done just about everything you can to make sure that, you know, A, your team is as good as it can be, and B, um, that you've addressed the weaknesses, uh, you know, to, to the best of your ability, whether that's within the organization or going outside it. And I think, um, you know, that when you've, when, you know, when you've got uh, an absence of those holes, I think you can, you know, you can at least look at that and say, yeah, you know, we have. Now, the Blue Jays were close to making it on, I believe it was the second base list, um, Whit Merrifield had a good day, and um, and and, and uh, four hit night against the Dodgers uh, last Monday. Uh, before I or this was let's see here no two Mondays ago before I um, uh, published that list, and so um, uh, I left them out of that. But like you said, Santiago Espinal and Kevin Biggio uh, have struggled, and uh, um, you know that they could have they could have qualified it uh, for the list if I'd run it at a different point there. Um, but you know they're like they are. That's still a, a lot better shape than most of the competition uh, that I pointed to, uh, especially in the wild card race. And you know we didn't address the pitching. Um, you know that's not part of the series because judging, you know, ju- we judge pitching differently here mm-hmm. um, in terms of replacement level. But uh, um, you know, I think the Blue Jays they addressed the situations that they could. I, you know, I don't think uh, DeYoung is a, is a is a real difference maker. But in light of the sudden injury to to Bo Bichette, they had to get somebody, and um, you know, he had been, I think, at least uh, pretty solid in St. Louis amid um, you know a, a complete collapse of that team. Uh, that there's reason for optimism. Obviously, so far, like you said, two for twenty hasn't really uh, um, uh, shown up to be uh, a, a great. Uh, um, a, a great addition, but I, I think over time, you know, he'll be okay. And Jay, the Jays address the second base position by calling up Davis Schneider, who is on pace to be worth 24 yeah. wins above replacement. If he were to get 600 plate appearances, <laughs> uh, you going over or under 24 win season for Davis Schneider when he gets his, his first go around. Uh, I think we're going to have to have to go under there. Just but, slightly, uh, though, right? Yeah, it's, it's nice. To, it's nice to see a rookie come up and, and, and start start his career that way. Um, certainly gives uh, gives the team a, a shot in the arm. Um, you know, I don't know a ton about him uh, prospect wise, other than he was a, a very late round pick, and we don't even have him on our uh, 
uh, prospect radar here, but uh, um, you know, it's uh, he, he'd been hitting well in AAA, and uh, obviously he seems to have carried that over to his first few games. So um, maybe it will work. And look, I know you're a man who uh, appreciates a good mustache, and he's checking that box, uh, that box as well. So uh, another, there's some representation for you on the Toronto Blue Jays roster now. Right. Okay. Good. Uh, Jay, Jay, Jay Jaffe. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Keep up all the great work over at Fangraphs. All right. Thanks. Take care. Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs. Again, that replacement level killer series. It was not intended by Jay to be a uh, Cleveland Guardians series preview, but it kind of works that way because they've got a couple of uh, big old dead spots in that lineup. Now they had. They are only four games under five hundred. Of course, strength of schedule only matters if you're playing good baseball. Um, James and T.O., by the way, tweeted out a, a remaining strength of schedule leaderboard from Fangraphs earlier today. The Blue Jays have uh, the rest of the way here, the fourth lightest strength of schedule. Um, that is based on how teams are projected to be the rest of the way, not not simply what they've done to date. So uh, Twins, White Sox, Cubs have it a little easier than the Blue Jays by nature of being in the central divisions, but the Jays have gotten the hardest parts of their schedule uh, out of the way. Now, still, again, good, good teams ahead. They play the Cubs this weekend. Uh, they've got another series with the Orioles, the Phillies, and the Reds. Uh, over the course of one week as well, that won't be light. But there is that stretch late August into early September where they play a number of bad teams in a row. So if I think if you're the Blue Jays, you're looking at that strength of schedule and you're not saying, oh, things will get easy. You're saying, hey, let's build off of this Red Sox weekend. Let's start playing our best baseball. And then, you know, that's the time of year you can really make up some uh, – maybe not ground in the division because you're not playing your division uh, rivals, but certainly some separation in the wild card race. That Guardians team, by the way, is expected to start Gavin Williams tonight, Tanner Bibby tomorrow, Logan Allen, and then Noah Syndergaard. Those four respectively will go up against Hyunjin Ryu, Yusei Kikuchi, Kevin Gosman, and Alec Manoa. Uh, that Thursday game, the the series finale, Manoa against Syndergaard, is a 1 p.m. start. The rest of them are at 7 o'clock. Uh, even though it is a holiday today, you still get Blair and Barker 5 to 7 and Blair and Barker for Jay's Talk post game. We're with you for another segment here. We're going to take a break. We're going to tag in Louis Paulus, who uh, used to blog with way back in the Beyond the Box score days. He went on to be a part of the Philadelphia Phillies organization and consult for a number of Major League Baseball teams doing some award-winning, literally, uh, sabermetric research. So uh, we'll talk to Louis about what his career path's been like. If any of you are interested in, in hearing, you know, what, it, what it's like on the data side to get into baseball and work in baseball, we'll talk to Louis about that. He's also a Guardians guy, though, even though he worked for the Phillies. So uh, we'll continue to tee up this series as well. And we'll keep an eye out to see if there's any news about a potential suspension for Jose Ramirez uh, for this series, because obviously that would have a, a pretty big impact on how these four games look. Louis Paulus joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Fun weekend 
rolls into what could be a fun week. Jays Guardians, if the Jays wanted to send a little happy birthday to their general manager, they might do so with a win tonight. It's Ross Atkins' birthday. It is the birthday of Mike Trout. It is the birthday of my pal, Will. It is the birthday of our next guest, Louis Paulus of the Lose Letter on Substack, formerly of the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, at Lose on First on Twitter. Good morning, Louis, and happy birthday. Good morning, Blake. Thanks so much. Uh, what a greeting. It's, uh, hey, it's your birthday. We got we to gotta do it big. It's, uh, it's 30? 30 or 31? 31. So uh, nobody else is really doing it big. It's not really a big year. But uh, it I'm is. Uh, well into my 30s now instead of <laughs> arguably in my 20s. So, uh that, that's a big uh, threshold to cross, like mentally and behavior wise, uh, you know, still from a, a baseball side, you'd be, you know, you, they wouldn't be kicking you out of the league yet. You'd still be on the front office side, making the like under 40 executives list. You're, you're in good shape, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, well, appreciate the pep talk. I needed that. Uh, all right. So we go back to when we're like, we're talking like over a decade ago. Cause I'm very old, um, like blogging together on beyond the box score. And you were also writing for baseball prospectus and things like that through your time as a student. Um, I do want to talk to you about the guardians. Cause I know you grew up a guardians fan. You, you keep an eye on that team. Um, uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your career path in case there's anyone listening who is interested in that or, or might be interested in going down that path as well. Um, so during your time, as a student, you were kind of writing and blogging for fun and for passion. How, what was the process like of you deciding that that could be a career path and then chasing that toward uh, eventually being in a major league baseball front office? Yeah. So I, I always loved baseball. I grew up a guardians fan in Cleveland in the nineties. And I feel like people don't always remember just how fun it was to be a Cleveland baseball fan in the nineties. I mean, it seems scored a thousand runs in a year. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's nuts. Um, so uh, naturally, I became a baseball fan growing up watching that. Uh, but I quickly found out that I was a lot better at the uh, mental side of it than the physical side of it. Uh, I was really good for my first year of kid pitch because I was so short that nobody could find my strike zone, so I walked a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, once kids could pitch to me, I was uh, pretty much done for. Um, my mom tells a story that when I was in T-ball, my coach asked what position I wanted to play, and I said general manager. So I knew I wasn't really going to be a professional at uh, the physical side of it uh, in any serious way. Um, but I remember I read Moneyball somewhere before eighth grade, which I know is a cliche origin story, but that's, that's what happened to me. And I realized that there might someday be a place in the game for someone who wasn't good enough to actually play it. Uh, so uh, that sort of sparked the interest or sort of sparked the, the change from like, oh, you know, this would be a fun fantasy to have. To, oh, this actually might be something I could try to do. And hey, you you went down that path, and I find this very funny. I know, look, in seriousness, this you wrote a paper that won an award at the from Saber, the the Saber metric community and organization. If you build it, rethinking the market for Major League Baseball front office personnel, um, that was also that doubled as your your thesis in, in econ at Brown University. But I find. As smart a, a guy as you are and as good a paper and award winning that, that may have been, the takeaway that baseball decision makers are underpaid in purely economic terms. And then from writing that, hey, this is a vastly underpaid labor pool. 
you decide, I would like to join it. I would like to join the vastly underpaid uh, labor pool. So coming out of coming out of Brown, uh, you know, armed with, with a little bit of Sabre experience, of writing experience, uh, and deciding, yes, I'd like to be one of the the mass of underpaid uh, faceless personnel. How did you how did you approach that? How did you go Brown Econ into uh, first an internship with the Phillies and then building from there? Uh, yeah, so I guess it really goes back a lot to what you first talked about, about our writing together at Beyond the Box Score, uh, that in that day, and I think probably to some extent still today, uh, one of the best ways to try and get your foot in the door in a front office was to be writing and doing your own research and doing your own work and putting it out there for people to read. Uh, certainly doesn't hurt if, you know, when your resume comes across someone's desk, if they remember the name or something they've read and liked, uh, that certainly helps. If they read it and didn't like it, I guess you hope they forgot they didn't like it, but still remember the name. Um, so I did a lot of uh, my own research, uh, both academically, as you mentioned, and then uh, publicly. Um, I, summer before my junior year of college, uh, I was working for a college team where I basically offered them the full suite of what was then a standard sabermetric uh, toolkit uh, customized for their team and their conference. And I was able to help parlay that uh, into a first internship for my senior year of college, actually with the Guardians, which was my hometown team. Uh, and that was a you know, dream come true to actually be working for your hometown team. Uh, I graduated from college a couple internships later. Um, I uh, happened to be at the Phillies at the time when they were looking for someone to uh, join their analytics group. And uh, they forgot to fire me when my internship was over. <laughs> so sit on for a few more years. That's yeah, that's a, a good way to do it. Hey, just stay below the radar enough to, to not get axed. Um, now I know you're being self-deprecating and surely more went into it than that. Um, but you did. So you spent a couple years there and one of the first pieces you wrote at your sub stack, the lose letter L E W S uh, like news, but lose um, you wrote a piece called how to leave your dream job. So um curious for, for listeners who, you know, might be wondering, hey, why is this guy talking to Blake instead of still being in a front office? Um, what was that part of the process like for you to, to take a step back? And I know you you are you do some consulting for for teams that you can't really talk about and mention, um, but the to t- take a step back from the job you'd been chasing and kind of reevaluate your relationship with baseball. Yeah, so I explained this, I think, a little more eloquently, I hope, uh, in the article itself, but he'll read that. Uh, but basically, I got to a point where... Uh, Baseball had really just taken over my life, which is what happens when, um, you know, it was my greatest love, my greatest passion. It was what I thought about all the time during school, whatever my free time. And then uh, it became my work, which was awesome. I mean, I, I feel like this often gets put in negative light, but the the body of the of my career is that it was really, really great for a long time. I loved it. It was great to, you know, walk into a stadium and have, feel like you have a desk there and uh, get to think about baseball day and call it a job. It's, there's nothing like it in the world. Uh, the problem is that eventually uh, the passion and the work can get muddled and get mixed. And it got to the point where it was hard for me to think about baseball without it feeling like work. Um, that, you know, even just like watching games, um, it still was cool in my head, but it wasn't as enjoyable as it used to be just because uh, it was harder to separate that boundary in my life. Hmm. So uh, it was a really, really tough uh, mental reckoning I went through and a lot of self-reflection and a lot of hard conversations with myself and with friends and family talking it over. Um, but, you know, cause it's all I'd ever wanted to do. It's all I'd ever seen myself doing. And I, I'm so, so lucky to have gotten to do it and to have really enjoyed it for many, many years. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're more than just your job. 
And it's hard to remember that sometimes when your greatest passion is also your career. Yeah, and uh, hey, look, that's on the the front office side. I can certainly relate from a, a sports media side as well. I'm glad you were able to come to a spot that you felt comfortable making that move and feel good about where you're at. Um, and I do want to ask you more about what you're doing now. But before we pivot to that, um, having gone through that experience, the wanting to do this for a long time, the getting there, uh, the stepping away, if anyone were to be listening and is thinking, hey, you know what, on, on the data side or just in general, that's something I, I'd like to explore, even though Lou walked away from it. Um, w- is there anything that you you know you picked up advice you would pass on to someone who's thinking about something like that? Yeah, uh, the best advice I ever got, which is now the best advice I feel for myself when other people ask me, uh, is uh, before you start applying, uh, make it as easy as possible for the person you're talking to or person reading your resume to picture you doing the job. Uh, so, I mean. It's a lot easier to get a job in baseball in terms of just volume than it used to be because provinces are bigger, departments have expanded, there are new avenues to get into the game, whether it's working for a team or working for a third-party vendor. Um, there's more jobs available, but there's still a huge uh, talent pool of people who want to work in baseball because it's really cool. Uh, they're very competitive openings still. And the easier you can make it to stand out from the other really qualified, talented, smart, personable people – Easier you can make it for the person you're talking to to picture, oh, if I hire you tomorrow, you can do this job immediately. Um, that really helps you stand out among the pack of, again, uh, a lot of other very smart, qualified people. And the, you can read a little bit more about that at the newsletter, uh, your sub stack that you had a piece last summer, do's and don'ts, networking and sports. So if anyone wants to to read or hear a little bit more about that, uh, they can check that out. So uh, Lou, I, I know you're doing... Um, some consulting still on the team side, but um, you've also been doing some research just kind of as a, hey, I'm a curious baseball fan again now, and I want to put some stuff together. That is particularly focused on the shift. Uh, back in March, you you took a look at whether uh, the shift band was working in spring training games, and just a couple weeks ago, uh, you kind of put put out a piece that, hey, inadvertently, these rules are actually increasing strikeouts, which I think is contrary to what Major League Baseball was hoping was ha- would happen, which is people go to a more contact-oriented approach and maybe strikeouts go down. We are two-thirds of the way into the season now. I know that last update you did was was in June, uh, so it doesn't reflect the, the latest data, but two-thirds of the way into the season right now, what are you seeing with the change uh, in shift rules and what has resulted in baseball? Sure. So I actually did check the numbers last night, and it looked like things were roughly the same, just in the quick uh, glance I took over before coming on to talk to you about it. Um, But basically, the way I think about it is um, it's very easy to say that if you're a hitter and you have sort of decided it's okay to strike out because if you hit the ball, it's going to go into the shift. Anyway, you'll be thrown out, you know, either ground out into the shift or or hit a long drive right to where someone's standing. That once you take that away, you'll say, okay, I'm going to be less upset about striking out. So or sorry, more upset about striking out. I'll care more about putting the ball in play that even soft contact is a better chance of getting a hit. The problem is uh, batters are not the only people involved in this interaction. Uh, and pitchers and defense have a say in this too. And the flip side of it's batters care more about not striking out if the shift is gone. It's the pitchers now care more about getting strikeouts if the shift is gone. So uh, generally speaking, I think if you look at the last couple decades of baseball as you look at the relative incentives for pitchers and batters to either get or avoid strikeouts. Uh, the pitchers have more incentive to get strikeouts than batters do to avoid them. 
because, you know, strikeouts aren't always a bad thing for a hitter because they're often correlated with more power. Uh, so, first of all, you just have to think about, you know, you're helping the batters want to strike out less, but you're also making the pitchers want to strike out more. The other piece of it that I talked about in the article, and this is sort of the thing I was trying to mostly argue, is that the types of hitters who are most hurt by the shift tend to be higher strikeout players. Like you think about the typical shifted guy, he's probably like a hulking lefty who doesn't have a whole lot of speed and all or nothing kind of hitter, which is not every shiftable player, but it's, you know, disproportionately so. And those guys tend to strike out a lot. So when you take the shift away, they become more valuable because it's harder to get them out if they put the ball in play. So you're actually incentivizing teams to play more high strikeout hitters than you would if the shift were there. Hmm. And that's, that's a, it makes sense when you hear it that way, especially you mentioned the incentive system for a hitter versus the incentive system for a pitcher. And, you know, the, I guess we call it selection bias or, or playing time bias that's introduced now with those higher strikeout guys. I'm curious as you have gone through this work and you've been on the front office side, but also just thought about this at a, at a holistic baseball level um, when it comes to what could be next as teams try to find kind of a new equilibrium here or, or new advantages with how things play right now, or as the league continues to tweak, to try to lower the strikeout rate, which even if they don't come out and say it explicitly, we know they've been trying to do with some of these tweaks. Um, what could you see next? Is there anything on the horizon for, you know, how this offseason might change or, or what an, uh, a subsequent rule change from baseball might be like, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit there to speak for baseball, but I know you've thought about this, this shift stuff a lot. Sure. Uh, I don't have a right answer here. I think you could do something ridiculous like, you know, ban sliders or try to, you know, set a maximum fastball velocity so it's become <laughs> easier to hit. Um, but I think the problem is any tweak you make is going to have ripple effective incentives uh, that aren't always easy to predict ahead of time and sometimes might at least mitigate the effect you're seeing because everything you can do to, you know, make strikeouts less attractive for hitters, or I guess more unattractive for hitters, uh, makes them extra important for pitchers. So you have that uh, push and pull. And I think you just think about the mechanics of how baseball works. The pitcher usually has more control over how the flow of the game goes because they're the one who starts the ball. Um, the best answer I've thought about, short of something like, you know, banning 105 mile an hour fastballs, uh, I think if you work through the incentives, making the parks bigger might help. Uh, because suddenly power hitters who strike out more become less valuable if it's harder for them to hit home runs. Uh, balls in play, uh, at least you probably see more balls fall for hits if the park's bigger and there's more room in the grass for it to fall, but you give up fewer home runs if the batter makes contact. Uh, so I think that might work. Uh, it's, again, not very practical either. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> move every park uh, walls back, and it might take quite a big distance for it to make a measurable, noticeable impact in strikeout rate. But I think if you think through the incentives of what it would take to bring strikeouts down for both sides, uh, something like that might be the only good shot. If someone listening to this has a better idea, which I'd love to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can kick them around. We can lower the mound. We can do uh, do a couple different things. But yeah, 102 is going to be 102. And until batters can somehow find a way to speed up their bats, which I don't think we can, I don't know if the eyes and the, the hands work any quicker than that, it's going to be a tough one uh, to crack. So, Louis, um, the Jays are playing the Guardians this weekend. I know your work was with the Phillies, and you can't talk about who you consult for now, but you grew up a Guardians fan, so we 
can ask you a little bit about where the Guardians are at. Couple games under 500 here. Uh, modest but not aggressive sellers at the deadline. How do you feel about where they're at and that directional choice in general in what is a, I guess, wide open but wide open for the wrong reasons, AL Central? Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is particularly a new analysis, but it's the best uh, I've been able to think through. I think the Guardians sort of operate as a high-floor team that uh, they have the payroll constraints that they have, and, you know, we can get into why that is or how whether it should be the case, but it is what they're working with right now. And I think they sort of figure that their best shot at, uh, you know, winning a championship, building a consistent winner, is just be, you know, at least an average-ish team every year. Um, if you look at their numbers last night, I think they have the best strikeout rate as a hitting team in the league and also the lowest home run rate in the American League. So you're seeing kind of this, this sort of high-floor um, team-building philosophy. And, and it's also been noted that they like to draft or, um, or sign uh, high-contact middle infielders that have athleticism like the bat-to-ball skills. And obviously, if you're focusing on that instead of something like power, uh, that sort of limits the upside you have as an organization, uh, as a team, uh, but it sort of keeps you in the game. And um, in a division at the AL Central right now where nobody seems to really want to win it, um, that's enough to keep them in the race. And I think if you get, if you keep building a you know decent to solid team every year, uh, that's how you maximize the number of bites you get at the apple. And, you know, once you get in, anything can happen. That is, that is a reasonable approach and they've you know 2016 2017 2018 2020 2022 they've had some some bites at said apple including the run to the world series in 2016 where they came up short against the cubs um so a player who has been a key figure in each of those playoff runs and certainly in the fact that the Guardians are even roughly 500 this year is Jose Ramirez. We don't know for sure if we're going to see him in this series. We, we all are kind of anticipating a suspension of some length after him and Tim Anderson uh, got into it on the weekend. And Jose Ramirez very quickly ended that. Um, but Jose Ramirez is standing. And I know, look, he doesn't have a, a World Series yet, but he went to a World Series. He's been in the playoffs a bunch, a number of all-stars. He's been on MVP ballots a bunch of times uh, in your time as a Guardians fan, just how high has Jose Ramirez ascended in terms of, um, you know, favorite Guardians for you or or just, you know, your sense of the Cleveland baseball community in general? Yeah, I'd say that, um, you know, for me, I'd say the, the childhood Guardians uh, that I think, too, are probably the ones that are still my favorites, uh, you know, they grew up watching and rooting for, especially since most of uh, Ramirez's best career uh his peak career has come while I've worked for other teams. So I haven't been as big of a fan around that time. Uh, but yeah, I think if you're a Guardians fan, Jose Ramirez is, you know, one of the best players you've probably ever seen on your team. Uh, probably one of the best players that the Guardians would have in their lifetime, just because he's one of the best players any team would have in a reasonable person's lifetime. Uh, and he's a, you know, reasonable Hall of Fame possibility at this point. You know, if he keeps it up for much longer, I think he gets goes from reasonable to maybe even likely. Um, and it's it's pretty cool that he's done it all for one team. And, uh, you know, who knows if he'll spend his whole career in Cleveland. But uh, right now, if you're looking for favorite players and you're a Guardians fan, it doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't. And he's a, he's a blast to watch. So that's the Guardians fan side of this series. Toronto Blue Jays fans have historically made the trek down. Uh, in pretty good numbers when the Jays play in Cleveland. It's only about a five-hour drive from here. Uh, Louis, I know 
that you are, in addition to your baseball work, you do a little bit of food writing. If a Toronto Blue Jays fan is listening and is heading down to Cleveland for a couple days here, do you have any food recommendations for them? Oh, I've got enough to take you through the end of your show here. Uh, I've got to limit this, though. Uh, one place I say you got to hit, it's called Tommy's. Uh, it's a restaurant in Coventry in Cleveland Heights. It's about maybe a 15, 20-minute drive from the ballpark, depending on traffic, so not too far away if you've gone the five hours down from Toronto. <laughs> uh, they have the best milkshakes in the entire world. All um, right. I guess your listeners don't know that I don't use hyperbole lightly, but I, I mean that very seriously. Uh, we actually had them at our wedding a couple years ago. Instead of a wedding cake, we had wedding shakes. Uh, they're that good. They're they're life-changingly good. Get a mocha shake. The food's good too, but the milkshakes are that's why you go for the milkshakes. That's uh that's a pretty that's a pretty big wreck. Best in the world. And wedding fair. That's a that's a great did that take any convincing or was that like a, you both agreed to it pretty much right away? Uh I think once my wife uh tried the shake, she was sold. All right. Well, uh, there you go. Tommy's. That's uh, a little bit outside of the the downtown Cleveland part. But as you are driving down to Cleveland, if you're a Blue Jays fan, you can check that out and and report back to us if it truly is uh, the best milkshake in the world. Louis Paulus, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to catch up. Uh, Louis Paulus, you can check him out at the Lose Letter on Substack, L-E-W-S Letter, uh, as well as at Lose on First on Twitter. Uh, or X or whatever. Um, it was very fun to hear his story um, from our days back blogging together and, and him kind of taking the route to a major league baseball front office. Okay, so the Jays will start four games tonight against the Guardians. It's Hyunjin Ryu against Gavin Williams tonight. Yusei Kikuchi against Tanner Bibby tomorrow. Kevin Gosman against Logan Allen on Wednesday. And then Alec Manoa against Noah Syndergaard on Thursday at one o'clock. And again, as, as Louie gave us there, some, some recommendations for you. If you're a blue Jays fan, that is uh that's going down. So Hyunjin Ryu against Gavin Williams tonight. Um, obviously we saw Hyunjin Ryu on Tuesday. Um, and uh, you know, his first start there, this will be a second start back. The velocity was down slightly last time out. He, he was throwing around 89, but um, spin right there was pretty good. So, I don't think we need to get too bogged down in the the velocity and the spin rate and stuff like that. Uh, just one start back. The important thing was he was upright and uh, pitch efficient. And yeah, the curveball w- was snapping off pretty well. Very curious to see what this is like a second time out. If there, if there's been some progression uh, with some of the, the velo or, or some of the, you know, he really didn't throw his cutter at all in that, in that first outing back. So curious to see how that looks. Uh, if you're looking for the book on Gavin Williams, uh, he is, and you'll hear this on the broadcast. I'm almost certain he's a big extension guy. So we've talked about a couple times on this show with different pitchers, um, how a fastball at 95.5 maybe plays up or plays down depending on how you use it. So with Gavin Williams, 95.5 as a starter, that's a pretty good fastball anyway, but this is a dude who's six foot six. He's also like, he's listed at 250 pounds. So this is a big dude. And he has 99th percentile extension. And what that means is he gets further down the mound with his stride than just about anyone. Now, this is a, if you think of say Jordan Romano's fastball, how it looks sometimes like the fastball just like explodes at a hitter. Like it, it, they don't have a lot of time to pick it up. And so it looks even faster than maybe the radar reading. Uh, this is what Gavin Williams is six, six. So he's a big guy, long arms, and he's taking that long stride down the mound. So when the ball comes out of his hand, it's got less time to travel, uh, less space to cover. And as a hitter, you have less time to react to it. 
Now, the drawback of that is those fastballs tend to be a little flatter. They don't they don't have a lot of you know movement on them, but that can be a positive too when you locate uh, as well as he does. And he'll work that fastball. He'll try to work it up in the zone. It can be it can catch too much of the plate at times, but it's a it's a pretty good fastball overall. And he's had some good results on it this year, a uh, higher whiff rate than, than you'd maybe expect for a guy who throws a fastball 58% of the time, but it's not elite. And, and you look at his slider. That's also not elite, some decent results, but it's not a huge swing and miss pitch by the standards of a slider. Uh, he'll throw a curveball a lot to lefties instead of a slider. Now hitters have only hit 192 off that, but again, as far as a breaking ball goes, not a huge swing and miss uh, guy. So there's some opportunity to get bat on ball and ball in play here against Gavin Williams. We'll see how that goes. The Jays have 14 hits or more in three consecutive games. So that's a pretty good spot to be in. Um, but of course, all eyes on Hyunjin Ryu in his second start back, as well as uh, let's see if Davis Schneider can keep this going. Um, we are going to, in a minute here, kick it down live to the National Bank Open from Sobe Stadium. Uh, Devang Desai and Jesse Rubinov doing a uh, sports at today live from there in a little bit. Blair and Barker in their usual five to seven spot today, even though it's a holiday, they will also bring you Jay's talk post game after Hyunjin Ryu against Gavin Williams at 7 PM. So uh, a fun day of shows here. Um, curious to see if the weather holds off for us down at the national bank open um, lots for you to check out throughout the day as well. If you're looking for something to do, Louis Paulus joined us. You can check out his newsletter at the lose letter on Substack. pitching ninja joined us. You know where to find pitching ninja on Twitter and, and YouTube and, and everywhere else. Uh, Jay Jaffe of fan and Kayla McGrath of the athletic. So thanks to all of those uh, guests for coming on. It was a fun show. Thanks to Nick and Luke who are filling in. Back behind the glass there today. Thanks to Jennifer Rolnick. Uh, Blair and Barker, 5 to 7. Rubinoff and Desai, live from National Bank Open. Next, we'll talk to you tomorrow on the Sportsnet Radio Network at Sportsnet 360.